0: Do you want to know what to expect in 2024? No one can see the future, but today's events show us trends to watch, especially for leaders. In this episode, Franklin University Provost Christopher Washington interviews Maureen Metcalf about the trends she sees unfolding in 2024, which will affect leaders at every level. Helping leaders deal with uncertainty is just part of the VUCA-MAX training we've incorporated in our leadership courses at the Innovative Leadership Institute. You can't control the future, but you can control how you respond to what it brings. We can show you how. Learn more at InnovativeLeadership.com.
1: Welcome to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future. I am typically your host, Maureen Metcalf. But not today. Today I get to introduce you, Maureen Metcalf, as my
0: guest for the 2024 Trends episode. And I'm Christopher Washington, your host for the show. I'm excited to talk to you about this Trends show because you have been a guiding light for a number of years based on the interviews that you have with leaders and thought leaders who offer insights on the challenges of our particular time, challenges that present themselves as either hurdles or opportunities for our listeners. And so this year, I'm just excited to learn more about the trends that you've identified for this year. I have to tell our listeners that it's a unique thing for us to focus on trends, Every generation has had their particular share of challenges. In the 1920s, there was the Great Depression, stock market crash, banks that failed, economic hardships that leaders had to deal with during that time. In the 1970s, there was the emergence of stagflation, a combination of stagnant economic conditions, And high inflation, which challenged leaders to grapple with the complexities of managing cost and production and prices in an environment of an economic slowdown and rising inflation. I'm curious to know the ideas that we face today from your perspective. But what would you tell your listeners in anticipation of hearing these trends? Why it's beneficial for them to understand what these trends are and what they need to do about them?
1: In working with leaders, I use trends with every client. And I would say it's a couple of fold. One, as we're looking at how do we develop ourselves as leaders and continue to evolve, I have to evolve to meet the changing conditions. In an AI forward future, I'm going to need to amplify things like how I work with humans and know where I can offload things I used to do to my AI machine friends. So that's the leader side. On the business side, there is the strategy of How do we run our business in the context of what's changing and evolving? And I think as strong leaders, we need to understand both how I need to lead differently, but also how my organization stays ahead of the changes that we're seeing so that I can ensure we stay relevant. And the example I'm using with AI is... I have a normal car, my next door neighbor bought a turbocharged car. When we go out and race each other, that car gets ahead of me at an increasing rate. I will never catch up. Even if I later get a better car, I can't close that gap because the gap has continued to expand. So for leaders understanding the trends about where the business environment is going, if I allow my competition to get too far ahead of me, I can no longer remain a solid competitor in the race. So these trends give us a sense of the
0: prevailing direction in which companies are moving and enables these leaders to adopt strategies to effectively address and to keep pace with these changes in
1: our world. And I would add to that also manage the risks because some of these are risk related like changing environmental conditions and degradation. That poses a risk, especially for companies like insurance companies. Less about the opportunity and more about risk management. Horeen, if you don't mind, I'd love to share with our listeners remind them of
0: the trends you identified last year. And I'd like to get your take on them. I think, personally, they were right on the nose. But why don't we start out with AI? You said that there would be a growing investment in artificial intelligence and in domestic chip production that could lead
1: to new business opportunities. That was one of the trends you noted. And that was before GPT had come out and gained popularity. I think that we're moving at a pace beyond what I had imagined. A more rapid pace of adoption. Of these technologies, which
0: is leading to a shift in wealth distribution. Absolutely. Which you pointed out. You also mentioned that there will be a greater focus on sustainability and energy security, challenging us to assess and manage our consumption and costs related to energy.
1: Yeah, you know, and we're continuing to see, especially in countries like China, an acceleration toward EVs. And surprisingly, the most recent report I heard was that China is coming online with solar power and wind power at a rate beyond any other country. Now they're also moving online with more petroleum based power. So they're just having larger power requirements. But My understanding is the rate of adoption of sustainable energy is beyond what anyone anticipated. And so in a way, they're modeling what's possible for other advanced economies. Of your trends, the five trends you mentioned last year, this third
0: one, inflation and food security will continue to affect nearly every aspect of our lives. Boy, has that been a true statement. You know, this notion of inflation and what that's meant for us over the past year. You challenged us to think about creating offerings as leaders that appeal to budget-conscious consumers.
1: One of my clients is a value-based hotel, and they're doing well because they market to consumers who are budget-conscious. The
0: fourth trend you mentioned last year was that there was a lot of shifts in workforce demand and challenges related to the great resignation and quiet quitting. I wondered if you want to talk a little bit about that.
1: So we are seeing a shift in power now with organizations downsizing and investing in AI. So I would say actually shifting their labor force. I still think we have a large level of disengagement, quiet quitting and quiet firing from the organization side. And Balancing that with things like mental health challenges, we will revisit workforce dynamics again this year. And lastly, you suggested that there will be an increased
0: need for leadership development this past year, encouraging us to really think about preparing the next level of leadership in our organization to deal with a VUCA environment, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity.
1: And I would say that's absolutely still right on. We're also seeing in some industries retirement at an accelerating rate. Chemical manufacturing is seeing an accelerating rate of retirement and so elevating the next level of leaders and also elevating leaders who think differently than their predecessors did because the environment's different. Not to minimize that what their predecessors did in different times was appropriate for that time. We now need to lead differently and in fact we've just published a book on leading in the age of AI to address what we think is different. Reflecting back on 2023,
0: we're now in December. Were there any surprises or unexpected developments that either
1: reinforced or challenged your initial assessment on these five trends? We didn't anticipate the war in Israel, so Israel and Hamas. I think that's created an increasing level of uncertainty, geopolitical instability, wondering what's going to happen in Lebanon and Hezbollah and what are the alliances and also what's happening with the BRICS bloc, so Brazil, Russia, India, and China, and are they gaining power based on the shifts in geopolitical conditions? Well, now that's interesting because I believe as we start to unveil your
0: 2024 trends, there's something to be said about this in those trends. So we'll come to that. Let's turn our attention to this year's trends and the tensions you anticipate they would create. This year, you talk about tensions. Could you explain why you've sort of shifted to account for the tensions that these trends create for leaders?
1: In the past, we've talked about the trends as something to conquer. Either I manage the risks or I conquer the opportunities so that my organization can perform better than competitors. I think in some cases, these are areas that conquering won't address, that we're really navigating much more complex issues. If I look at the nuance of the issue, I need to be managing several facets of an item to really succeed. Yeah, it's
0: an interesting perspective for leaders to be able to think about, we are going to encounter tensions. How do we resolve them? How do we manage them? It's what our responsibilities
1: are as leaders. We're taught as leaders, we're supposed to be able to fix problems make good decisions, and bring closure to things. There are a lot of things that we can't necessarily bring closure to. And so let's look at geopolitical conditions. 55% of CEOs are now saying that conditions that are impacting their business are outside of their control. They don't control as a CEO what happens in the Ukraine or what happens in Russia or what happens in Jerusalem. And yet they need to manage the uncertainty, understand the scenarios, and be prepared to pivot. We've always had to navigate uncertainty. We've always had to manage risk. The intersection of the volume and intensity of these issues is what's elevating. So in many cases, leaders will need to do what they did previously And that's manage their own resilience and their presence and who they are as humans so that they can lead people in their organizations who are in varying levels of uncertainty and distress. Maureen, you
0: talk about FUCA Max as a sort of evolving condition, the accelerated nature of massive change and the accelerating nature of it. And I think that principle is reflected in your first trend. So we have seven trends we're going to cover. Your first one talks about artificial intelligence taking center stage, that there's this massive adoption of artificial intelligence and technologies that are flowing from this accelerated advancement of our computing power. It's sort of growing exponentially. I think it's Moore's law is sort of a basic concept here, that technology is advancing in shorter life cycles. How do you see this trend of artificial intelligence taking center stage and the impact of that?
1: If we think about the range of areas and the stats we hear, things like 80% of some jobs will shift dramatically. As forward-looking leaders look at how do we leverage the opportunities this creates for us, so quantum computing, gene editing, the medical space is going to see treatments and cures at an accelerating rate beyond anything we had imagined. Imagine running a medical school. How do you keep up with what you're teaching given the accreditation process? It's going to be a different world in a couple of years if it isn't already.
0: Yeah, I'm hearing you say that there can be some tremendous benefit to improving the human condition and the lives, but that there are challenges in adoption, sometimes systemic, bureaucratic, etc. What kinds of tensions do you anticipate this will create? this explosion of AI in its use for leaders and managers today.
1: One is how do I experiment, but also follow solid processes? I can't agilize everything if agilize is a term. If I'm reporting to the SEC, I can't just make up new processes this week using some new AI tools and hope they're right. And there is some amount of rigor. If I'm doing anything that is EPA related or food safety related, there are all kinds of fields where a level of process discipline and reporting is just absolutely required and bringing ai and computing power on will change over time but i also need to manage solid process excellence solid performance and so it is going to be a balance between okay this is possible and i'm managing risk and speed and what's happening in our industry what's happening with regulation what could be happening with regulation there's a lot of complexity in that equation that leaders need to be paying attention to In my organization,
0: there are folks who see the hope in the technology, and then there are those who see the fear in it. As managers, there's sort of a unique challenge in that aspect, too. I think there is an accompanying hope for many of my employees and an accompanying fear associated with the increased use of AI. Concerns, for example, about student plagiarism is on the fear side. Others see the potential of having more advanced, higher-level assignments that they can provide for students. It's a challenge for managers to figure out how to work with the workforce that have very different views on the use, effectiveness, the ethics surrounding artificial intelligence.
1: And the rate of training. So that's the other is how do your faculty members stay current? For people who've already earned their PhD and they're staying current in their field, now they also have to stay current in all this AI stuff that may be distant from the areas they studied. Yeah, so it's not
0: just developing new skills and knowledge. Sometimes it's unlearning their outdated mindsets.
1: It's a lot of unlearning mindsets that they may not think are outdated. You may think are outdated. Well, let's deep dive into trend number two, which
0: you specifically call out weather disruptions. And I love that you've pointed this out. I thought about environmental degradation, but environment is everything outside of us. So there's the idea of water pollution and climate change and changing weather patterns. Can you talk a little bit about your estimate of the role of weather disruptions and how that's taking center stage in 2024?
1: I'll add, as you've pointed out, species extinctions and pollution and resource degradation and access. So bringing in the geopolitical issue. Companies need to have strategies that focus on these environmentally related issues. If you're running an insurance company, you have all kinds of algorithms looking at weather. We are seeing more shift in companies getting out of offerings. Who insures properties on the beach in Florida right now and at what rate? We interviewed the CEO of the Weather Channel and they talk about their offerings in helping companies understand what is coming and building strategies around connecting weather to your business. And one of the things that's been troubling is the prior models are no longer predicting current weather patterns. Oh, interesting. So we saw a hurricane hit Acapulco. It was predicted to be a Cat 1. Within 12 hours, it was a Cat 5. So people did not have time to evacuate. Lots of properties were destroyed. Imagine living on the beach in Florida, and I did at one point, and we knew when a hurricane was coming in and we evacuated. Imagine that you have 12 hours warning and it starts at 9 p.m. So people are going to bed. They think they've got time. By 9 a.m., they're in cat five conditions. There's no time to evacuate. If they got up at seven in the morning, looked at the weather, they're gonna be in their car, which they don't wanna be. Where do they go and how do we navigate just the human side? And then think about all the businesses that are operating in that area or business people who now got stuck because planes aren't gonna be able to land. So that's on the negative side. And then there are companies like Amazon who are creating disaster relief approaches because they've got the warehouses and the planes. And so companies are also flexing their models to meet these environmental demands. So it's not all catastrophic, but forward-looking companies and Walmart's done something similar. So there are companies that are meeting the challenges and maybe meeting them ahead of the Red Cross because someone like Amazon AWS has these little Trucks that can provide satellite coverage for organizations just to communicate and continue to operate.
0: That's fascinating. So there is a unique tension associated with these weather patterns. And you've sort of given us a prescription of what is necessary here, understanding the data, making effective decisions in light of what is possible relative to our environment these are really key things. Any other thoughts about how managers and leaders should consider addressing this particular tension?
1: I realize that ESG for some people is something they are absolutely passionate about and others not so much. I think we will find that over time, if we don't work in harmony with our environment, we will find our businesses won't thrive. So whatever that means for any given business, we need to find approaches proactively to ensure we have the resources we need long-term. Interesting. Maureen, this next trend
0: has me a bit puzzled, and it has to do with how we work together to identify paths forward. And that is made more difficult by this next trend that you identify, which is increasing social-political polarization. What do
1: you mean by this? And what tension does it create for leaders today? I'll give an example on this one. I was in a board meeting. There was someone from Jerusalem. There was someone from Dubai, Jewish and Muslim. And I think that played into the conversation. So the person from Jerusalem is explaining her experience being in Jerusalem during a time where they're being bombed. The person of Muslim background is saying, You people are believing all of the Western news. This is nothing short of a genocide of my people. Then we're going to try to have a conversation. How do we honor the points of view of both of these very accomplished people? And their views were held absolutely at their core. They were true for them. How do we help people with absolutely opposing points of view find a space to move forward in an organization. This was at a board level where board members need to be making policy. Do we take a position? What do we do to protect our employees? How do we do that on both sides? Are we favoring one side over the other? Do we take a political stand? There are complex questions and this one is absolutely a tension. I think that we need to manage how do we run our business and How do we create a safe space for the precious humans who show up to work in many cases when they're watching their family members injured and dying?
0: What do you think 2024 holds relative to this? Do you think the shift is more toward incivility or do you think we'll begin to shift toward identifying more common ground that allows us to conduct business more effectively or to set policies What's your sense of the sort of zeitgeist around this issue of polarization?
1: You know, my deepest hope is that we find paths forward. As a business community, as a group of human beings, we have to be able to coexist. We've got interesting people doing work in the space of peace. We interviewed a young man who was a child soldier in Rwanda. And this young man is now getting his PhD in peace studies. It is possible for people to move beyond. And I think this young man is one of the most exceptional people I've ever met. My hope is that we as leaders bring every bit of our skills to the table to help the people in our organizations. That's the access I have. I can touch the people that work within my organization, model, understanding, listening, and knowing that I'm running a business, not a social service organization. How do we balance all of that In some cases, you're not going to talk about your views at all. You show up, you're here to serve food or do technology code and just leave the other stuff to the extent you can at the door so everyone can work on the thing they agree on. This is our work. There's a place for both. Certainly in the boardroom, understanding the deeper human impact is required. In some parts of the organization, that's going to be disruptive. I hope those words don't come back to bite me. And that's the tension, right? Where do we explore it? And where do we create a place where you actually can check your emotions at the door? And it may be most appropriate. Maureen,
0: diving into your fourth of seven trends, you shift to talk about the economic landscape. And over the past few decades, we've experienced what some analysts call easy money low interest rates, access to capital. And now we're shifting to more elevated interest rates over this past year, and you're anticipating that there'll be an increase in interest rates in 2024. Talk about what that means and what impact they'll
1: have on leaders and the tensions they might experience. Organizations that were profitable, in some cases, won't be. I'll use the example of real estate. If I could cover my costs with my revenues at X amount, as my costs go up, my revenues have to go up. If my product doesn't warrant that additional revenue, then bankruptcy or abandonment. And we are seeing in the real estate space, some interesting shifts and seeing properties that were not so long ago, viable properties now going through significant conversions. We will continue to see that any organization that borrows money to meet payroll. This isn't just, I bought a big building. If I finance ongoing operations, it has become more expensive and I need to consider where I'm placing my bets now more carefully. What opportunities do I invest in? The internal rate of return has just gone up because the cost of interest has gone up. So projects and products that would have been approved previously won't now. Yeah, You're going to have to be a little bit more selective in making decisions that require borrowed resources. And how does that drive innovation? If I can't afford to innovate, I'm impacted. That's right. Trends five and six have a common theme for me, Maureen, and it has to do with the
0: changing nature of workers' work in the workplace. Trend five specifically talks about work-life demands. What do you see is changing related to work-life demands over the next year?
1: And what tensions will that create for leaders? Here, I want to say what I've seen in this year. Everyone I work with seems overwhelmed. We used to go through cycles. I have a big system implementation. I know I'm going to be all out for X number of months. And then I get a break. People are just frazzled. There is no break. But shouldn't AI make it easier for people? You know, we're (laughs) reading about three-day work weeks and four-day work weeks. That day may come. (laughs) In my planning horizon, I have not cut our schedule back to four days a week next year. I'm old enough to remember when they said email was going to
0: save me time and uh, I'd have to work less as a result. And it ended up doubling my
1: workload and people having more access to me. And probably more than that now. Yeah, I was in finance and we would do, you know, one or two analyses. Now we do thousands. I am not currently seeing a decline in workload. I'm reading a lot about it. As AI comes online, as it becomes more routine, That may happen, but I think there's a lot of angst and anxiety in the learning process for all of us to figure out what are we unlearning? Am I, do I feel safe? Am I going to have a job? There's a lot of anxiety between here and a four-day work week. Which
0: puts pressures on leaders and managers to figure out how to balance, or is it a balance? What can I do as a leader or manager to affect work life of my
1: employees? I think it's something we have to look at. Am I creating the conditions for my people to be mentally healthy? physically healthy. As a cost of entry, I should create an environment where people, when they walk out of my organization at the end of next year, they're not sicker and more depressed than they were this year. There are certainly exogenous things that happen, but I would like to make sure my workplace is not causing people to get ill. Your trend sex addresses another aspect of changing
0: nature of workers and work in the workplace. You point out five generations in the workplace. And I was just thinking about the fact that I have colleagues who are older in their mid-60s and upper 60s who are still working. And, you know, they didn't save for retirement well enough. Economic conditions are challenging them. And so they're in the workplace with 21-year-olds now, very diverse group of employees. What kind of challenges does that present to managers and leaders today?
1: I was talking to someone last night at a foundation event, faculty member at a local university, and she's in her late 70s, I believe. So you've got 20s to 80s. That's 60 years of difference. Different perspectives and histories and mindsets. And worldviews, experience, all of that creates the opportunity for more robust solutions, acting with grace. How do we create the conditions where we act with civility and respect? You're not those old people who are out of date and you're not those kids with no experience, whatever the variation is. And one of the comments you made earlier was also immigration. If we think of climate migration, we're going to see a lot of people displaced and a lot of people in our workforce who are dealing with emotional challenges if their home has now been flooded and they'll never be able to go back. They may speak different languages. They may be from different countries and different sets of experience. So how do we meld all of these uniquenesses and create workplaces that work for the humans that inhabit them and for the business to be profitable? I think that's a tension that's going to become more complex before it becomes less complex.
0: You know, that's a dynamic that many tribal communities held, where there was a tremendous amount of value for the elderly, as well as a real commitment to transferring ideas about the culture and the community to the young people. It can be a very interesting place if you have the ability to manage this tension.
1: Respecting elderness and elders respecting the role of cultivating our youth, I think, is maybe a mindset we have lost. Earlier in our interview, you mentioned the role of global affairs and how
0: that can impact local decision-making within organizations, even domestically within our organizations. In trend number seven, you point this out very explicitly by pointing to the idea that geopolitical uncertainty and shifts in sort of global relationships and domestic priorities can impact managers, leaders, and the kind of decisions they make. Can you talk a little bit about that and the tensions managers are likely to experience as a result of geopolitical uncertainty?
1: we hit this in a prior conversation as well regarding the polarization. And I think this builds on that piece from a business side, trends of reshoring manufacturing, chipsack, new alliances. We talked a little bit about the BRICS alliances. Yes. And I think we will see businesses making decisions about where production is managed in conjunction with government funding. I was in the computer industry in the 80s in contracting. We had to meet made in America requirements for government stability, that we had to have a certain amount of technology produced here. So if there was a war or discord with other countries, we would have the internal capacity to thrive we're moving back to some of that now as our alliances are realigning. And some of the countries that we've counted on during your and my work lives Uh may not be as stable from an alliance perspective. That shifting, make different business decisions over the next year and beyond than we may have made five years ago. If I'm a listener, I'm probably thinking, wow, seven trends, these trends
0: taken together are a bit overwhelming. It wouldn't be a Maureen Metcalf interview for me if I didn't tap into the question, how do I take care of myself in this? What's the idea about me as a leader addressing self-care or
1: cultivating my own resilience? Let me say a little bit about what I do, because that's the easiest way to answer I have become something just short of militant about self-care. So I do yoga regularly. I see a chiropractor. I meditate. I use a meditation software to help me move into theta brainwave state. I watch my food. I'm probably on the extreme side, but I would also like to work into my 70s. If I am going to do that, I don't want to fall across the finish line like a broken down car that there's nothing left. Oh, wow. Right? Right. So, I mean, the image is you maintain what you've got because it's the only one you got. And I'm on the later end of productivity. And I want to make sure I stay there, stay highly productive. For anyone who is leading people, the requirement for us to be physically, emotionally, I'll say spiritually present with the precious souls in front of us at the same time manage these significant tensions and requirements of stewardship of the enterprise. And for any of our listeners in that role, you know, that's a massive amount of pressure. If you're not waking up in the middle of the night on a regular basis, you're doing something that I want to learn about because most of us... Have nights that we just either can't get to sleep or can't stay asleep because the volume that we are carrying is significant. The responsibility for the people who count on us to make good decisions to feed their families, that the products or services we produce allow them to stay in business. And all of these trends and hundreds more are things our leaders are balancing every day. And many of them don't have the self care practices. They don't have the option. In some cases, just I can control my schedule a little bit more and I do the best I can to make sure I get yoga in before I come back to work. It's not like I get to, you know, hang out in my pajamas all evening and frolic. I'm still working, but I am now prioritizing differently the fitness. I was thinking, I'm just delighted that you constantly
0: remind me and your listeners how important it is to take care of ourselves. I love to walk my dog, for example. It just gives me a bit of peace of mind during a sort of difficult day. But our listeners, they may have a whole range of other things that enable them to find that peace or uh, homeostasis for themselves. And so I suspect that all of us, given your trends, will be called on to dig a little deeper deeper. And to make challenging choices, but we can't forget to take care
1: of ourselves. What else do you do? I know you have a family that you cherish and get to spend time with. I
0: do think eating properly, spending time with my children and family is something that makes me well. And uh, having a very stable team that I pour into their, own de- their development, am enriched by their experiences and presence and sort of temperament, that helps Surrounding myself with people who are of a good temperament is really
1: important to me. You know, as you say that I am remiss in not mentioning both my partner, Mike, and my colleague, Dan, and our entire team, having people around us that are positive, supportive, find opportunities to see the good in the world rather than continually complaining makes my life fun. As challenging as the environment looks, and I'm afraid that as I talk about this, I sound like I'm predicting the world of Mad Max or something, and I'm not. I'm actually really optimistic that for many people will be a very challenging year. We're experiencing a lot of transitions. I mean, imagine if quantum computing and AI can solve your parents' dementia issues, or your sibling's cancer diagnosis, or help people who have fertility problems have children. There are so many opportunities for people who couldn't get good jobs because they couldn't afford education. Now we're looking at how does AI help people get access to really decent jobs. And there are solutions that will come online in every facet of society's problems. The opportunities outweigh the risks if we are mindful and leading well. If we are not mindful and leading well, we can go down a really negative path. And some people will. Maureen, I
0: I appreciate you heightening my mindfulness about what's around the corner. I'm walking away from this interview a bit more optimistic and filled with purpose around what I need to be doing as I encounter 2024 in supporting my people and the organization. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to be your host today, and to have the opportunity to turn the tables on you and interview you on the wisdom that you've gleaned from all of the folks you've interviewed over the years.
1: Thank you, and let me ask you a question now. I get to be host again. You say what you're taking away. You are a brilliant futurist in your own right, and you are leading a university. What have I missed? And what will you do differently going into 2024 than you did coming into 2023?
0: The one idea that I think I would add to your trends list is that we're going to have to be more accelerated lifelong learners. The nature of learning is shifting in that people can learn on YouTube, they can learn on Twitter. They can learn through a variety of means. There are emerging organizations that are providing structured learning experiences for people. Uh, there's more experiential learning opportunities. I think that shift that those of us in post-secondary education will have to account for more sources and means of learning and build that into stackable learning opportunities for individuals, recognizing that a person with a PhD may come back for a certificate in analytics, and a person in analytics might want to stack their credential to a bachelor's degree and then on to a master's. We're going to see people coming in and out of these educational pathways, given the demands in the environment for learning and new evolving domains of learning that are going to be necessary.
1: And you're doing a lot already in your institution to bring that forward. Absolutely. It's a priority for us to think about how we match
0: what we offer to the complexities of the learning ecosystem today.
1: Years ago, I, I was involved in a program that looked at what was happening in the economic demands, the workforce trends, and what was happening in universities. And back then, what we learned was universities couldn't meet the demands quickly enough because of accreditation requirements. It wasn't that they didn't want to, just structurally they couldn't. And at that point, we didn't have certificate programs like this. So this certificate path allows us to quickly help people either retool or tool, especially for folks who may not have the the means to go get a full degree. Some employers can't wait four years
0: to upskill their workforce. So, there's been an increased value toward micro credentials and professional certification and certificate programs. We see a jump in these programs being offered at universities today. I think the National Clearinghouse, which tracks data on enrollment in education programs, noted a 9.9% increase in uh, certificate programs, whereas bachelor's degrees were like 0.3% increase. So, much more popular increasing value perceived by employers because of the time to reach mastery and the cost for employees. It's less expensive to go through these programs and they can demonstrate skills. And so we have to think about how we incorporate these more into our degree offerings and path people to more advanced education.
1: There's one other thing universities provide in doing this that individual companies can't necessarily. Anyone can start a training program and lots of people do. And some of them are absolutely brilliant, and some of them are absolutely crap. You've seen them, I've seen them, probably most of our listeners have seen them. By going to a university for a credential, there is some level of academic integrity and academic credibility built into the system. We spend a lot of time assessing what learners know it and are
0: able to do that assessment and the feedback associated with these experts who provide that feedback really makes universities very distinctive. And then we have, in addition to that, the roles of research, scholarship, service, other aspects that contribute to society. But we're dedicated to knowing what's changing in our world, incorporating that into a curriculum, making it relevant, ensuring that individuals who go through a program, a study, achieve a certain level of mastery or competence as assessed by the faculty.
1: As assessed? period. Yes, as assessed. (laughs) Assessment is a big part of what we do. Well, and again, comparing it to, and we offer training programs, so I don't want to say that don't come to us, but the idea that when we're buying training, we need to ensure that we have a mechanism to assess does someone get better.
0: Makes the outcome that the program more powerful when you can do the assessment. Absolutely.
1: And so bringing that back to the trends, as we look at the volume of change, the VUCA max piece, all of us will need to find avenues to stay current, whether it's listening to this podcast or reading blogs, going to YouTube. Probably most of us will also be going to university programs for additional certifications.
0: Well, we certainly hope so. And we want to be there. I'm working with our faculty to make sure that we're keeping pace with what's changing in our world. We have regular forums, for example, to talk about AI and what that will mean for teaching and learning and professional practice and even our own administrative processes. All of this is really important to us because we're anticipating maximum accelerated exponential growth, the VUCA max. We're anticipating it and uh, preparing for it at university.
1: Christopher, it is such a delight to get to talk to you, which we do over a glass of wine, but (laughs) (laughs) to share this with our listeners, because these are the conversations that I think enliven both of us. And we will have a jointly written blog attached to this podcast for people to read more in depth about the trends and tensions.
0: Always a pleasure, Maureen. I'm just delighted to bring the audience into our conversation.
1: Thank you. And to the audience, to our listeners, please like and share and comment on this and all of our podcasts.